Most of us here, I suspect, remember that radio show that would come on in the afternoon, Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. He would tell about a time like when Eleanor Roosevelt got, was shot by uh, Shirley Temple with a slingshot and then go to a commercial only to come back and explain the backstory leading up to it. After tying it all together, he would end by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. This morning's passage is like the first part of Harvey's program. We find God's prophet Elijah running for his life from Queen Jezebel, who threatened to kill him, and somehow he makes his way to the mountain, Mount Horeb, and there God calls him out and passes by in the iconic story of God's mysterious silence. Let us pray. Open our hearts, O God, to perceive you through the all-filled silence between your word and ours. Amen. It must seem paradoxical for me just to have that introduction and then prayer and then sit up and begin to preach to you with words. Yet the words hopefully follows the silence. Our word this morning comes to us from 1 Kings, chapter 19, 1 through 17. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. King Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. When suddenly an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked, and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for those Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. The word of the Lord. So how did this come to be? How did it come to all this? Elijah, the powerful prophet from Jezebel's own prophets, way more powerful. How did it come to be? That's the question and the rest of the story. Some background. Remember how God, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, God's first part of the commandment said, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. It is this no other gods before me part that separated Israel from all the other tribes and cultures in Canaan. In the wilderness, the people of God the Israelites had covenanted to worship God and God alone. That was the covenant. Instead of all the colorful, carved and sculpted array of idols, each with their own promise of special powers that happened to be in vogue at the time. And when David was king, 200 years before this story, the people of Israel did worship only Yahweh. Instead of being assimilated into the Canaanite culture, they chose to be specifically set apart as monotheist. 
Then comes King Ahab 200 years later out of, after a series of 13 progressively bad kings who progressively become more syncretistic in, in worshiping other gods and idols, Ahab being the worst of all. And when he married the Canaanite queen Jezebel, she served the Canaanite god Baal, the god of rain and thunder, and also fertility. And since she wore the pants in the family, Baal worship became the largest sanctuary in town. Having had enough, God calls Elijah the prophet, whose name aptly means God, Yahweh, is my God. Calls them to confront the royal family, and because their worship is of idols, he told them that Yahweh will bring a drought on you for three years, upon which the greatest drought you've ever seen. And this ironic scene, of course, is true because Baal is the god or supposed god of rain and storm. And God told Elijah that after that prophecy to the royal family, you need to save your life and flee, which he did for three years. He went across the Jordan to the east. There's a lot of story in it I'm not going to give you, but it's fascinating. And then God calls Elijah back to meet with Ahab and to tell Ahab that now is the time for a showdown challenge between your Baal God and all the prophets, there were 450 of them, and Yahweh, my one God. 450 of your prophets against me, one prophet, two. So they gathered on Mount Carmel and uh, Elijah's giving the instructions and he says, bring two large bull, one for your sacrifice offering and one for mine and build yourselves an altar and place the wood on the altar and put the bull on the altar that has been cleaned and halved and then begin to pray to your Baal God so that that God of yours will send down fire and ignite your altar. And they started early in the morning and began to pray and chant and dance those 450 prophets of Baal. And they were working themselves into a lather by noon. At that point, Elijah started mocking and taunting them because nothing had happened. And he said, where is your big bad Baal God now? Cry louder. I can't even hear you very well. No chance that your Baal God can. Maybe he's just meditating. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Perhaps you need to scream louder so you can awaken him, which only sent the prophets even deeper into a lather and they began to cut themselves with swords and knives until finally they were exhausted and gave up and no fire had come. So Elijah steps up and says, okay, my turn, build another altar. This time I want you to build it out of 12 stones, the 12 tribes of Israel and around on that altar, put the wood and, 
and cut the, cut the bull in half and prepare it and place it on top of the altar. And around that altar, build a big trench, a big trench. And then I want you to go out and find 12 large containers of water and pour each one on top of the altar so that it is completely soaked. And they did, and the whole trench was filled with water too. And at that point, Elijah prayed to God to come down and light the fire of the altar. And out of the sky came fire and demolished the altar and evaporated even the water in the trough to the point where all the people gathered there bowed down because of the power of this Yahweh God of Elijah. Game, set, match. Only for Elijah, it wasn't. Elijah decided to take it on himself to order the people to slaughter the 450 prophets just to make an exclamation point. By then, Ahab is on the run in his chariot trying to make it back to Jezreel while Elijah, as high as a kite, the Stephan Curry of prophets, decides he's going to run back to Jezreel which he does and beats the chariot back on foot. When Elijah heard that when Ahab got home and told his wife Jezebel what had happened and how Jezebel threatened him by this time tomorrow for his life, he was no longer invincible or bulletproof. He was afraid of Jezebel. I mean, Baal God didn't make him afraid. The 450 prophets didn't make him afraid. Ahab, it was Jezebel who scared him. And he decided that he needed to run into the desert where he literally wanted to die. Isn't there a proverb that says, pride goeth before the fall? Denzel Washington told Will Smith after those Academy Awards debacle, at your highest moment, be careful, that's when the devil comes after you. When Ahab makes it back and tells Jezebel what had happened, he's a dead man. And so he, he ran into the desert. Now you know the rest of the story. This is the moment of Elijah's existential crisis when he comes to see himself as no greater than any other man. If you notice, that's what he said when he wanted to die. Oh Lord, take my life. I've just discovered I'm not any better than anybody else. Get over it. <laughs> Which is exactly what he does when God feeds him with an angel and gets him on way again up to the Mount Horeb, the same mountaintop where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And on that mountain, he finds himself a cave which he goes into to pout. 
Remember that story in the Johnny Cash movie? It's a true story when Cash was so addicted to drugs and alcohol, he didn't know anything to do but take his own life. And so he wandered into a cave to do just that. And while in there, a vision of Christ came to him, converted him into faith, not his first time, by the way, but his last, converted him into faith and decided then that he was going to be sober. He came out of the cave reborn. That's the hope for Elijah. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like that. Not for Elijah, not for us. The threat of our demise is the first stage. There's always a Jezebel out there, but we're also fed on the way by angels. You see, I chose this title of this sermon, The Hero's Journey, for a reason, it being Father's Day, especially this story of the hero's journey has meant a lot to me in a particular book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, written by Joseph Campbell, who was all the rage in the 1980s, about the time I was going through my crisis of what am I going to do with my life. And Campbell got it from Carl Jung, who studied the archetypes of basically males. This applies more to men than women, yet women have their own hero's journey. Studied the archetype, and it follows the same pattern. We get all full of ourselves, and then we face some existential crisis, and we end up falling from that. Something happens, and we basically just want to die or crawl under a rock but we find ourselves being fed and fortified in that place. It's a huge personal U-curve. And then and at the bottom of that, we start making our way up because something greater than we are has gotten us the strength to move. And in that process, we begin to hear a new understanding of who we are and who God is and who the corporation is and who all the world is. Not overnight. There's, there's Elijah on, on the mountaintop and he's in the cave and God says to him, what, what are you doing here, Elijah? You're supposed to be a prophet out there in the world. And Elijah says, another narcissistic Elijah comment. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. As if God didn't understand that. Your people, not his, catch it. Your people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. I'm not being very kind to Elijah, but I can tell you I'm speaking to myself. You know that self, that whiny self that we all share, that that has to find a scapegoat and blame somebody for. God's got to shake his head. Get out of the cave of your self-absorption, Elijah, and stand on the mountain like a man, for I'm about to pass by, and he does, but not in the way you would think. Only in sheer silence, that still small voice where Elijah becomes aware of the deep hunger in his heart in the absence of God. 
the Deus absconditus, it's called. The God who has absconded is what, it's what the great, great theologian Karl Barth titled that God-shaped hole in our hearts. Bishop Rabbi Sachs says about this passage, the episode of Elijah is enigmatic. Immediately before the vision, God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, I'm zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And immediately after the vision, God asks the same question and Elijah gives the same answer, only this time he says, I'm very zealous. The Midrash, he says, which is the Jewish rabbi sitting around talking about the meaning of this text, it's sacred too. The Midrash says, says in Elijah, Elijah speaks, the Israelites have broken God's covenant and God speaks. Is it then your covenant? And Elijah speaks, they have torn down your altars and God speaks, but were they your altars? And Elijah says, they have put your prophets to the sword and God says, but you are alive. Elijah says, I alone am left, which was a lie because Obadiah, another prophet in Israel that Elijah was clearly aware of was also alive as were a hundred other prophets that Obadiah had hidden. But I alone am left. Here's God's last response. Instead of hurling accusations against Israel, should you not have pleaded for their cause? <sighs> Still in process, Elijah comes to see that being very zealous might in fact be a sin. He had beaten all the prophets. He had, he had shown his worth and he was very zealous for God, but maybe he comes to see in the quietness of that, that that zealousness was playing God. The repeated question and answer is now to be understood, Rabbi Sex says, in its tragic depth. Elijah declares himself to be zealous. He has shown that God is not disclosed in dramatic confrontation, in whirlwind or earthquake or fire. And now God asks him again, what are you doing here? And he repeats the same response of zealousness. He has yet to understand that religious leadership calls for another kind of virtue, the way of the still small voice. God now tells Elijah that he must go and hand his mantle over to his successor, Elisha. You get that. In these earthquake and fire and windy times like these, there is an overwhelming temptation for our religious leaders and political leaders to be as loud as those three things. To be confrontational and divisive. Not only must truth be proclaimed by falsehood, 
but must be denounced and demonized all those who do not agree with us. Choices are set down in stark divisions. Either you're with us or you're not. There's righteous anger and indignation and messianic impulses and threat and condemnation and blame and scapegoating all around and plenty of violence and hatred on both sides. Does this sound right? One side are the religious and political leaders wed to the evangelical conservative church, the NRA, anti-abortion, climate, and vaccine-denying party of the big lie, we are told. The other side, who blame the basket of deplorables as they sit in our ivory towers of academic and liberal self-righteousness, looking down there our noses and wondering how so many people could be so stupid, we are told. This morning's story gives us a third option. A real leader hears not one imperative, but two, guidance and compassion. A love of truth and an abiding solidarity with those for whom the truth has been lost. To preserve tradition and at the same time defend those with whom you are not in agreement. Have we not come to this time and place in our country and world? Are we not claiming our own self-righteousness while trashing everyone else who doesn't agree? This is the story of the Bible. It's not political, it's spiritual. The Jezebel of lives and political and religious conceit has called us out and we are near extinction. Can we make it to the cave of self-awareness when we hear God's quiet voice? Will we find the shame and humility that comes from this in a way that we can hear again a new way to be born? Will we be able to discern the difference between the cacophony of sounds and the soft voice of God? Maybe it's not the rest of the story after all. Maybe in fact the story is still being written. We pray. Amen.